It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. On the app, on your smart speaker, talk radio and talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Uh, it is... Believe it or not, the third anniversary of the day that Boris Johnson announced that the COVID lockdown would begin and would begin immediately. Um, It's a strange one, isn't it? Because I woke up this morning, I heard the words that he spoke, all 17 seconds of it, and suddenly thought, my goodness, it doesn't seem like three years. It doesn't seem at all like that sort of time has passed. But how much has changed in this country? How much has changed in the world? And how much will never return to the same place that we were in? just three years and one day ago. Walking into work this morning, there's an awful lot of people wearing masks. I don't know why so many people are wearing masks. It seems as if there's even more people wearing masks now than there were even a couple of months ago. It's a beautiful spring day. It's about 13, 14 degrees, a light breeze. Uh, I had the sunroof open in the car. It was that nice. And yet, there's something not quite right. Talking to Julie hartley Brewer just now, there are people uh, who are still suffering from the long-term effects of what happened in those three years, whether it be children who didn't get to school, whether it be people who didn't get diagnosed with cancer, whether it be uh, people who are still waiting uh, to get seen by the NHS, whether it be people uh, who lost their jobs because they couldn't get any furlough money, who lost their businesses because they weren't supportable, uh, who weren't able to keep going simply because there was not enough money. Things have changed and some things may never be the same. So we're going to talk about that. Isabel Oakeshott is here, Talk TV's international editor. We'll ask her about what's going on uh, with the Chinese and the Russians as well. We'll also talk about Boris Johnson and what happened yesterday, which I still maintain was a colossal waste of public money and time. I know lots of people enjoyed watching it. But really, did we learn anything new? I don't think so. Also, we're going to talk about Keir Starmer this morning because Keir Starmer apparently uh, is going to be speaking this morning about how fighting crime uh, has been his crusade all his life, which is bad news for some people and good news for others. People might want to remember, however, that Keir Starmer is very soft on foreign criminals. Seven dangerous foreign thugs who were due to be deported were stopped from being deported uh, thanks to his campaigning and his interference. And they went on to commit further terrible, serious crimes. Two violent thugs, four drug dealers and a stalker avoided a flight in 2020, thanks to Keir Starmer. And then they went on to commit some horrible crimes. I'll be talking about that, of course, as well. 0344 499 1000. It's Thursday, of course. So Helena Nicklin uh, is going to be here with the Thursday Club. We're expecting an interest rate rise at midday. It's all happening. Uh, Of course it is, because this is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Let's get it on. A 
A very good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on this very beautiful Thursday morning. The sky's already a bit blue, so we'll see if we can get rid of all the clouds by the time uh, one o'clock rolls around. Just before we speak to Isabel Oakshot, uh, state exactly where you are and try and remember this three years ago. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. And therefore, I urge you at this moment of national emergency to stay at home, protect our NHS and save lives. Well, Isabel, very good morning to you. Um, I, I slightly shudder when I see that and I don't quite know why, but, but what do you make of all of it? Well, I shudder too. And it's extraordinary to think that it's three years on. And in a sense, we're only really beginning to get some sense of the lessons to be learned and and what we can tell from hindsight. And I thought that Julia Hartley Brewer's interview with Jacob Rees-Mogg this morning was really interesting. Jacob Rees-Mogg was, of course, in the cabinet at the time these decisions were being taken. He has subsequently said that he and many of his cabinet colleagues, frankly, the vast majority of the cabinet, were cut out of the loop Mm. when it came the critical decision-making. In his interview with uh, Julia this morning on Talk, he said that schools should never have been closed. He also said, and I quote, we were taken for fools. Mm. That was in the context of the broader lockdown policy. I would like to hear more cabinet ministers and former cabinet ministers coming out now with their reflections on what went right and what went wrong and being honest about it. Uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, when challenged by Julia about why he didn't speak out more at the time, said, well, you know, we were governed by collective cabinet responsibility, that kind of slightly pompous phrase Mm. that means that everybody's in it together if you're in the cabinet and you've got to work as a team. I don't really think that's a good enough excuse, given that they weren't actually being treated as a collective cabinet. There were, in fact, four men who were in charge of the critical decisions, the rest of the cabinet were out of the loop. Mm. So I'm not sure why they felt that they were governed by collective cabinet responsibility and how much better a place might this country be in now if some of them had been brave enough to speak out. Well, we know from, from the fantastic uh, lockdown files that you unearthed from Matt Hancock that basically it was all for one and one for all, wasn't it? And it was all for the one policy and there was to be no dissension. There was to be nobody questioning it. Uh, and if you were questioned, you were at the very least put on some kind of list. I imagine you probably would have lost your job in the cabinet. But surely if people really disagreed with the policy, they should have just resigned from the cabinet, shouldn't they? Well, and we know that Gavin Williamson, who was then the Education Secretary, now wonders whether he ought to have done. I mean, I can give him the answer to that question. (laughs) He absolutely ought to have done, and it might have had a really sensational impact on the whole policy of keeping schools closed. Cabinet ministers and, and junior ministers, when they're weighing up whether or not to resign over a point of principle, um, usually think to themselves, well, will it make any difference to what happens if I resign? This is their kind of thought process. So they think, OK, well, I could resign and I can go down in flames and that'll be the end of my career and it won't make any difference to what the government is going to do anyway. In this case, I really think that if the education secretary, as he was then, 
had resigned on a point of principle, it would have had a huge impact. And I think it's a, a great pity that he didn't do that. And I think others could also have thought about doing the same. Well, just this week, we've seen Jason Leach, who was effectively Scotland's answer to Chris Whitty, saying that he thinks shutting schools was, in his words, a mistake. And you go, well, is that it then? Is that all we get? I mean, look, and, and on the other hand, it's important to acknowledge that there are still a very large number of people who think that there was no option but to shut schools. I mean, someone close to me in my own family uh, still holds that view and argued quite without any embarrassment, uh, argued to me that if we hadn't shut schools, then the children might not have had any parents or grandparents left. I mean, Mm. where do you begin with that argument um, when we're talking about a virus that had such a low mortality rate amongst anyone but those very elderly and very vulnerable people? Uh, It was not necessary to shut schools. Uh, There is a fascinating interview today in The Telegraph by Alison Pearson writer um, who was a a brave lockdown sceptic all the way through the pandemic. She has interviewed uh, the Swedish health um, expert Anders Tegnell, who led Sweden's very controversial response to the pandemic, which did not involve mandatory lockdown. Sweden was an outlier. um, And that was a very, very difficult and brave thing um, for their health advisors to do. Crucially, in Sweden, the politicians had basically no say uh, over the policy or very minimal say, because within Sweden's kind of constitution, I'm not sure it's actually the constitution, but in any case, the rules of the land, uh, they actually stipulate that in a health crisis, it is the kind of the Chris Whitty equivalent who makes the key decisions. Uh, And in this case, Anders Tegnell took the decision that actually it was not wise or overall beneficial to the population to force people to stay in their homes and to shut schools. And guess what? Now everything, all the kind of pluses and minuses are being added up and totted up. We see that Sweden actually emerges better Mm. almost everywhere else in terms of their excess deaths. So I, I really think that is a fascinating read. I'd love to distribute it to anyone who still thinks that shutting schools was essential because yes. we hadn't, then kids' parents would have died. And thank goodness for Sweden in a way, because Carl Hennigan was on Julia's show this morning. I don't know whether you heard him. And he said, if it wasn't for Sweden, a lot of our politicians would still be saying they got it right because there'd be nothing to compare it to because almost every other country did what Britain did. In some cases, did it worse. Yeah, so it's really good to have that as a kind of, of as a yardstick or a, a sort of barometer of how it can work out if you do things differently. Now, the lockdown proponents of which, as I say, there are still bewilderingly a very large amount, Mm. come out with all sorts of other arguments about how Sweden's a small country and it's not comparable and so on. And, um, you know, a fraction of those arguments may hold some validity, uh, but you only really need to look at all the statistical measures uh, now in the UK to, to to work out without any great difficulty um, the disastrous consequences of the policy that we did follow. Mm. Uh, and, you, you know, we are going to be trying to pick up the pieces from this to repair the damage for very, very, very many years. Absolutely right. Well, as I was saying this morning, there's a load of people walking around wearing masks. There's still loads of people um, who have never recovered their health 
because they couldn't get seen in that three-year period when they should have been seen. Many people who have got um, onset of cancer and dementia and many other things that should have been captured and caught in that first year in 2020 but wasn't. You know, people still suffering with children who are recovering from not going. We saw the story yesterday, 140,000 children um, who basically went truant last summer because uh, they didn't fancy going to school. I mean, I don't know whether Britain will ever recover and be exactly the same country it was, you know, three uh, years and a week ago. No, I, I agree with you. I share that concern. And I mean, the mask wearing thing is just weird, isn't it? You mm. know, I see people on the streets with them on. Yeah, um, today, I mean, it's the first proper day of spring, as far as I can tell. It felt like spring. And I'm going, what? You know, what are you doing? What, what are they doing? I mean, I think I'd love to conduct an experiment and ask each of those people, the mask wearers, how they vote. Mm. And I almost guarantee <laughs> this has become a kind of badge of mm. whether you're left winger or not. If you believe in the big state yeah. and telling you what to do, you are going to be one of those people that are still wearing a mask. Never before have we had such a visual symbol of how people vote. Now, quite how our politicians wish to use that very obvious data as they walk mm. round will be interesting to see. Yeah, maybe we just see the wrong sort of warped system of London uh, voters because London, of course, is now the sort of People's Republic, isn't it? And it's the, it's the only place where Labour's now got so many strongholds that, uh, you know, they cannot ever lose it. But, I mean, does it represent the rest of the country? I suspect not. Well, what we need is London to be the independent republic of Mike Graham. And then we would have absolutely none of this nonsense. No, they would be outlawed. Absolutely right. Stay with us, Isabel. We've got lots more to talk about, including, of course, why I still believe yesterday's events in the Commons and at the uh, Privileges Committee were a complete and utter waste of time and our money. This is Talk TV. Nationwide, by your side, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We're talking to Isabel Oatshock, uh, our international editor. We're going to get on to inter- international matters with Russia and China very shortly. But um, listening to what you've been saying there, Isabel, about looking back and what the government decision-making process was, I'd far more like to see a proper inquiry into that rather than that sort of nonsense we watched yesterday uh, where Boris Johnson was hauled before some people that didn't like him very much uh, who tried to prove something that they couldn't really prove uh, and made him a bit testy. It was all a bit of a public waste of money wasn't it i totally agree with you and said so on the talk on talk tv last night um whilst i completely accept the importance of holding our politicians and particularly someone who was prime minister at the time to account for telling the truth Mm. and that is of of course we have to uh, make sure that that happens and that there are consequences if it doesn't the guy resigned. You know, he is no longer prime minister. He resigned as a as a cumulative consequence of his handling of all of that um, of those so called parties in Downing Street. And you know, I tried to listen to all the evidence session yesterday. It was nearly three hours. Um, I manfully, I thought, survived an hour of it. Mm. Uh, but I mean, look, I just could not help thinking what a colossal and pathetic waste of yeah. time whole exercise was why aren't we going forensically through for example the case for shutting schools or any number of other aspects Mm. the case stopping routine cancer treatment during lockdown in the same way why are we wasting all this energy and resource over nitpicking as to whether people were 1.25 meters away from each other or two in a corridor several years ago. Uh, What we saw yesterday was Boris Johnson 
confronted by the absolute absurdity and lunacy of his own rules. Um, and that was the only good and, and pointful yeah. bit of the whole exercise. But you're quite right. I mean, shutting GP surgeries, one of my favourite moments of, of the lockdown was getting uh, a, a, sent a message by one of our uh, listeners at the time on Talk Radio with a picture that was posted outside of a GP surgery that said, please do not enter if you are ill. And that was go, me, wasn't it? I think that was, was me it? that No, that. maybe it was you. <laughs> I absolutely posted um, a picture from our own local surgery. Right. In it's, it's not a bad surgery, um, but it did have a notice up. Um, and yes, I posted it on Twitter and it basically said sort of, stop, do not enter. The right. doors to this surgery are now locked. Um, and I have to say, the same surgery, when you ring them up to get a repeat prescription, still plays you a very boring message about if you are suffering from the symptoms of COVID-19 mm. or are self-isolating, do not come in. I mean, surely we're over that now. Uh, they also have a recorded message that say, due to the current circumstances, it may take, you know, X number of days to do something perfectly routine. Uh. What circumstances? Why are we still using so-called COVID-19 circumstances as an excuse for inefficiency? When will this stop? Well, this is it. And they are still using it because nobody will change the rules or change the record. We know, for example, I think we heard uh, as part of that report that came out um, about the Metropolitan Police that there's something like thousands of them off sick on a, on a regular basis. In the same in the NHS, there's thousands of nurses off sick on a regular basis because COVID gave them that kind of permission, if you like, uh, to say, oh, I'm not feeling so well. I better not come into work. And that's happening all over the country now. It is. Um, and also in doctors and dentists surgery up and down the land, they still demand that you wear a mask. And in fact, in our local GP surgeries, they've taken to charging 20p uh, for one of these ridiculous, pointless symbols. Yeah. And, you know, I just wonder whether this is ever going to stop, actually. Um, it'll only stop if we, uh, we the people, just refuse to cooperate with it. I don't ever wear a mask in a GP no. or a dentist. I just say, well, I, I don't wear a mask. Simple yeah. as that. They don't challenge it. So I hope everyone else should adopt the same strategy. Yeah, no, I just, I started doing that. When, I remember when they started doing it on the Tube and I had Chris Philpon at one point to ask him when he was Justice Minister, was it the law? that you should wear a mask on the tube because I'm not sure what happens if you are stopped and told by a police officer to put one on. And he basically didn't know. Um, but he said, well, you should wear a mask because... And I said, why? And he said, because it's the right thing to do. And I'm going, well, I'm sorry. I'm not interested in doing the right thing. I'm interested in what the law is because I used to go in, in and out on the tube from time to time. And I remember once being told by two police officers who were stationed on the other side of the barrier, um, have you got a mask? And I just went, yes, thank you. I'll put it on when I get on the train. And then they went... You're supposed to put it on in the station. And I just kept walking and fully expected to have the old collar felt, but they never did it. But it was a very difficult time and loads of people have still paid fines and they haven't been refunded yet. Yeah, no, I, I think there should be a policy of undoing all those absurd and actually awful, sinister, draconian convictions mm. for people who you know, were literally going for a walk in the countryside and were told that you know, their, their cup of coffee didn't qualify as... Uh, something that you're allowed to do under the rules yeah. and it was somehow like a picnic or something. And anyway, why couldn't you have a picnic? For goodness sake, know. you know. In the no, open air. I was worried. No I mean, it tree ever gave anyone COVID. No, exactly. But it was a bit worrying, wasn't it, how many people, and maybe some of these are the ones that are still wearing masks, 
really embraced it, loved the fact that, you know, they could tell other people what to do or say you can't stand there, you can't sit there, roping off, um, you know, park benches. They actually, in Sussex, where I walk the dog, they shut the woods. I'm going, sorry? They shut the woods. Beggars believe. I remember being confronted by someone in our local co-op because I wasn't standing precisely on my oh, on the little circle. yellow, yellow <laughs> spot. And I was shocked. And actually, the the guy was really fat. Um, and I was so taken aback <laughs> that I was being, you know, taken to task over this that I didn't think to sort of point out to him that his far greater risk was not from me. I never had COVID, by the way. I was very lucky. Um, but was actually from the fact that he was obese, you know, something you could very much do something about. Um, Amazing. But maybe might not have been very good for local neighbourly relations. Probably so not. Yeah, probably, right. probably they best. My, they got back in my box on that. Well, occasion. that was the other thing. I mean, I, where I live in London, it's right by the river. And suddenly everyone, every time I walked out of my front door, there's hordes of people walking up and down. It's a private road. And suddenly it was full of people walking because that was all they could do. And I'm going, sorry, yeah. excuse me, this is my road. What are you walking down it for? Thousands of them, you know, all walking because they thought that was the healthy thing to do. Unbelievable. Anyway, let's talk about um, uh, the the Putin G summit, because uh, with your international uh, editor's hat on, um, is this the new Cold War, I suppose, is the question that people are asking. You know, it's a bit diplomatic at the moment, but, but where do you think it's going to go? I think it's really worrying, you know, especially when you see it build as a sort of peace summit, you know that it's precisely the opposite. Mm. Just at the very time they're discussing so-called strategies for peace, you know, more bombs are raining down on uh, on parts of Ukraine. Um, I mean, I think that it is... Uh, particularly also we saw um, the Chinese president, you know, saying to Putin, you know, take care, my very good friend. I mean, we should all be very, very concerned about this. If China uh, enters the fray in a in any kind of really practical way, you know, starts providing the type of ammunition, uh, not just diplomatic ammunition, but actual hardware um, that Putin needs as he runs through so much of his own resources, that is absolutely next level. You know, we are in totally uncharted territory if that happens. Um, But the one sort of source of consolation is that the Chinese, um, the Communist Party, takes a very, very long term view of things. They don't rush things. They don't have to worry about whether or not they're going to be Mm. elected. And they're just a little bit smarter um, than so many in terms of the way they approach these diplomatic situations. Um, They're a little bit more subtle um, than so many of, of the people that they are aligning with. So... I think that that Xi will know uh, that the consequences, particularly uh, in terms of America's reaction, would be very, very serious indeed if if they were seen to be doing anything. What we should be more worried about probably is the subtle stuff Mm. that they're doing. We're not quite, we're not, we're not able to detect instantly. Yeah, we'll just have to keep watching. Isabel, great to see you. Thank you very much indeed. Isabel Oakshot, Talk TV's international editor, uh, back with us, of course, every Thursday morning uh, with her take on what is going on. And like me, uh, she thought yesterday's events uh, were probably at the very least unnecessary and at the very worst, a complete and utter waste of public money. We'll be talking to Lord Robert Hayward, the Conservative peer, coming up live from College Green very shortly. Also, uh, we may well be hearing from the leader of the opposition, Sir Keir Starmer. Uh, He's apparently going to be giving a speech this morning uh, on reforming the police and the justice system. Uh, He's going to be saying that it's his mission in life uh, to fight crime. 
Well, unfortunately, the evidence would suggest that actually uh, he's been rather good at allowing some criminals to get away with committing even more crime. He's campaigned on behalf of foreign criminals to stay in this country and not be deported. And many of them have gone on to commit very serious crimes. It's a story in the papers this morning. We'll be discussing all of that. Plus, we're taking your calls, of course. 0344 499 1000. Mark from Sunbury says this. Call it what it was, a power grab by politicians, academics and the civil service. In large part, academia was influenced by hard left ideology. And Roy says, lockdown lessons learned. The greatest lesson I learned during lockdown is never to believe anything from Professors Fisheyes Ferguson and Susan Mickey ever again. Uh, Absolutely right. Uh, Both of them should be stripped uh, from uh, ever being in charge of anything ever again. 0344 499 1000 is the number. More coming up next. The home of common sense. Talk radio and talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Lots coming up, including, of course, uh, very possibly the inflation uh, be being at- attacked again. The interest rates may be going up at midday, we're told. Uh, Keir Starmer may be speaking about justice and the law. Uh, we'll be having a little look ahead uh, to Piers Morgan's interview coming up tonight uh, with Ron DeSantis, who may well be the next president of the United States of America. Martin van der Weyer is going to be here. And also, uh, we are going to talk as well to Freddie Says, executive editor and presenter from Unheard. But let us look now uh, back at what happened yesterday before the Privileges Committee, uh, because uh, Boris Johnson was presented uh, before them uh, like a sort of lamb to the slaughter. Uh, He made, I think, a reasonably good fist of uh, defending himself. Uh, Others will differ from that because they don't like him or because they don't like what he did. Um, Let's have a look at what he said when he was asked if he'd ever called it a kangaroo court. You can tell by my presence this afternoon, by the uh, seriousness with which I've taken uh, your questions... Uh, by my attempts to answer in detail uh, what you, the points you've, you've put to me, how seriously I take you and your committee. That's Boris Johnson saying that he did, in fact, take the committee very seriously. And I think he did take it seriously. I think there were times when he was clearly quite irritable about the kinds of questions that were being asked. Because after all, as I said to Isabel Oakeshott just now, we are very interested, I think, in the general populace about what happened behind closed doors in Downing Street. I think we're very interested in the policy that was made, very interested in the decision-making process, very interested in why uh, it was that schools were closed, why it was that GP surgeries were closed, why it was uh, that everything else on the NHS was put on hold while COVID was the only thing they dealt with. But really, I don't think that many people care whether somebody passed a glass to somebody uh, in a garden or in a corridor or whether they were two metres apart or one metre apart. And I'm saying I think it was all a colossal waste of time and money. I don't think we learned anything that we didn't already know. Let's talk to Lord Robert Hayward, a Conservative peer who's down on College Green for us. Uh, Lord Robert Hayward, a very good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you very much for joining us. I mean, I know that there will be some people who think it was a good exercise yesterday and that the whole Privileges Committee has to go through this process. But I mean, at a time when we're told we don't have bucket loads of money to spare, it seems to be a bit of a luxury to spend so much time on on such a small amount of of sort of um, news, doesn't it? I think a lot of people will disagree with you fairly strongly. Uh, We're talking about actions that the Prime Minister did or didn't take, uh, and there's been a lot of debate. You'd you'd have difficulty saying that to many people whose uh, relatives died during the Covid crisis. Uh, They want to know what actually happened and what motivated uh, Boris Johnson and the events in Downing Street. So yes, it's expensive, but uh, people want to know 
and, and have a right to know as well. No, people do have a right to know, and I'm absolutely with you on that. But what they have a right to know about is exactly why Matt Hancock, for example, said, let's scare the pants off people. Why Matt Hancock suggested that, you know, we should introduce a new variant. When should we do it? Uh, when would it have the most impact? You know, why they locked schools down when Jason Leach now says in Scotland it was a mistake? You know, why they used models which turned out to be vastly wrong and overrated? Those are the questions people want answering, and those are very valid questions. But I don't think most people and I would disagree with you, Lord Hayward, care about whether somebody passed a glass to somebody inside a room. Well, I, I don't mind. You can call me Robert, please. But um, I think there are large numbers of people who do care. And I take your point about Matt Hancock's comments. Um, but those will be the subject of another inquiry, which is the overall handling of COVID and the pandemic. Uh, and I'm sure there are some people that would quite reasonably say there are better ways of spending money than spending a lot of money looking back over a period of time about how the decisions were taken, WhatsApp, etc. But uh, other people uh, quite reasonably would say we have to learn lessons because there may be another pandemic. Well, right. And I mean, the thing about the uh, COVID inquiry is it's already spent £100 million, but they haven't even managed to actually get a cabinet minister uh, to be presented before them as of yet. And so that's obviously going to go on for a very, very long time indeed. But whereas this previous committee managed to get Boris Johnson in front of them uh, for about, what, three and a bit hours or something yesterday, um, I'm not sure we learned anything, did we? I, I think there were several things we did learn. One is that actually Boris did take it very seriously. Uh, he was very tetchy at the start. There was a division um, while he was being tetchy, and I have a feeling one of his advisers will have said to him, uh, don't interrupt your questioners uh, in the way you are because it's bad optics. Um, but we now know absolutely clearly what Boris is saying was his justification and we have not had that previously. Now the committee, the members of it, have to decide whether they accept his explanation or not. And will they take other evidence from other people? Because I'm told it could go for a while, this, could it? They've taken a large amount of written evidence. They said before yesterday's hearing that uh, Boris Johnson was the only person that they were actually going to interview in public domain. Now, they, there was a suggestion that in light of his evidence they might interview one or two other people, uh, but whether that's in public or whether that's in private, I think it's for the committee to decide, well it is for the committee to decide, in the next few days. So they may or may not have further sessions. Well, no doubt they would want to suspend Boris Johnson, but it's not in their gift to do that, is it? They would be only able to say that they thought that he misled Parliament willfully, recklessly or whatever. Um, he's already admitted misleading Parliament anyway. So um, what do you think is going to happen? Uh, sorry, there was a motorbike riding past just <laughs> as you asked that question at the end of the question. Yeah, the end of the I question was, was what, what do you think they will decide? I, I honestly don't know, and I don't think anybody does. Uh, there was a sense that some of them may have prejudged, both because of their tweets, not a sense, that, that's uh, a clear indication of what they thought at the time they sent their tweets or made their comments. But whether any views have been changed as a result of the session, I don't know. I know a fair number of the people on that committee pretty well, and they will take their role very seriously indeed. But it'll take a, a while for them to come, come out and say, A, whether they accepted his explanation, and B, if they didn't, 
what actions they are recommending. And so do you know how much this is all going to cost, this particular situation? I know there's an awful lot of noise down there. I think somebody's trying to deliberately upset you. Um, what, um, with, with all that noise going on behind you, can you tell us how much it is actually going to cost? <laughs> I do you know? I, no, I don't. Uh, and I won't know for certain the total costs until after the committee sessions have, have been completed. But it will be in the millions, I dare say. And do you think Boris Johnson deserves to be suspended? Um, I haven't looked at all the evidence in the way that the committee has, so I'm not going to make a judgment one way or the other, because without looking at all the evidence on both sides, which, as you will have gathered, and anybody who watched any part of it yesterday or listened to any part of it yesterday will know runs to hundreds and hundreds of pages of evidence from all sorts of different people. And uh, therefore, it's always dangerous uh, when looking at a trial to judge just on the one pieces, one small amount of information that you get. Uh, you need to look at all the evidence before you make a judgment on that sort of thing. Right. Just one final question, Robert, on uh, Keir Starmer. He's speaking as we as we speak, uh, uh, giving a speech about Labour's crime policy, such as it would be if he ever got into power. Um, a story this morning in one of the newspapers about how uh, he's, he's campaigned in the past uh, to stop very dangerous foreign criminals from being deported. I mean, he's going to make out this morning that he's a fighter for um, law and order and has fought against criminality all of his career. Um, do you think he's being a bit of a hypocrite? Uh, I must admit, I think the phrase questions to answer would probably be the most appropriate uh, judgment. Uh, you've cited one. There are a number of other aspects of uh, what he said previously, which uh, clearly he will expect to be questioned on. And it would be perfectly reasonable for people like you to ask the questions because he has got questions to answer. Mm, he has indeed. Uh, we'll take, uh, I'll take that under advisement. Lord Robert Hayward, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Sir Keir Starmer, uh, with his five missions, is speaking right now. And let's have a bit of a listen. I just couldn't have looked the British people in the eye and asked them for their trust. Those values are too important to me, the core of my politics today. So if the Tories want to attack me for being a human rights lawyer, attack the values I've stood up for my whole life, I say, fine. That only shows how far they have fallen and how little they understand working people. Keir Starmer talking about um, his core, talking about his mission, in the papers this morning, uh, there's one guy called Akiva Heaven, who was saved from deportation in 2020 by Sir Keir Starmer on his mission to fight crime. Unfortunately for him, on, uh, in 2021, that same Akiva Heaven was jailed for dealing cocaine and heroin. Here's another great uh, crime-fighting statistic for you. Barrington Lang, saved from deportation by Sir Keir Starmer in 2020, 2022, jailed for having a knife in a public place. Brilliant. Seven further dangerous foreign thugs went on to be drug dealers, stalkers, and serious crime of, uh, committers. I mean, just ridiculous. How much of a hypocrite is this guy? There must be questions asked, uh, is what we heard from Lord Hayward, and I'm going to ask them about Keir Starmer, because I don't believe a word he's saying. This is Talk TV. 
Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Lots going on, much to report upon. Sir Keir Starmer is still droning on about his new policy on fighting crime, uh, as a result of which apparently, I don't know if these things are related, he says he's going to publish his tax returns later on today. Um, can't wait. I'm sure they'll be as dull as he is, but I mean, it might at least give a window uh, into how, how much money he makes and what he does with it. Uh, we saw Rishi Sunak's tax returns released yesterday uh, to not very much of anything, really, reaction-wise. Uh, he did it, obviously, during the midst of the um, kangaroo court, as uh, some people have called it, of Boris Johnson before the Privileges Committee. Uh, but we're talking in this hour not so much about crime yet, but we will be later on uh, with Harry Miller. We're, we're talking really about the third anniversary of lockdown. Freddie Sayers joins the executive editor and presenter at Unheard. Uh, there's been some fascinating observations being made this morning already uh, on this show uh, about why people still wear masks, why people uh, still rather liked some parts of the lockdown and would rather like not to have to come out of it. And that, to me, is a very interesting phenomenon indeed. We've also uh, talked to you about the Alison Pearson piece today uh, in which she's got an interview uh, in The Telegraph uh, with um, uh, Anders Tegnell, uh, who was the man in Sweden uh, who had the sort of dissenting view, I suppose, from almost every other government in the world, that you shouldn't have a forced lockdown on all sorts of people in the country. You shouldn't shut the schools, you shouldn't shut the restaurants, you shouldn't shut anything. Uh, people could shut things if they wanted to. But let's talk to Freddie uh, and see what he makes of it all. Freddie, very good morning to you. Welcome. Uh, hi, Mike. So, yeah, we, we've just published today at Unheard a big opinion poll we did. We spoke to over 10,000 mm. people across the UK about what they now think, in retrospect, three years on today about lockdowns and the results aren't exactly what you'd expect because 54 no. percent of people exactly two times as many people basically still support them the question was in retrospect were lockdowns a mistake and only 27 percent of people agree with that so we've had this weird process over the past three years it feels like maybe longer than that the argument's been going on so long the evidence at least by my reading, seems to amount to quite a conclusive idea that actually lockdowns weren't easy to justify. Uh, and we talked a bit about Sweden a moment ago. I mean, they are the only country in Europe to have avoided them. They never had a mandatory lockdown. And in the new data that we've had in the last few months, their excess deaths, in other words, the number of people who died more than you'd expect over the whole COVID period, was the lowest in all of Europe. So mm. if you look at the numbers, if you look at the evidence, it's now really quite hard to defend lockdowns. But then the numbers we've got from opinion polls, the numbers about what people think about them, point in the other direction. So it's a strange kind of adversary. Yes, because it's a bit like proving the unprovable, isn't it? Um, where, a bit like Boris Johnson yesterday, you know, he's already admitted that he misled Parliament, but you can't really prove whether he did it deliberately or not. Same with lockdowns. You know, they'll always say, those who defend them, well, if we hadn't done it, look what might have happened or look what could have happened. More people would have died. And there's no real way to argue against that because you just don't know. Well, I think it is... I actually think you can argue against that because... It's not like this was an ordinary policy where if three years later the evidence is a bit messy and ambiguous, you can sort of understand it. This was a never-before-tried-in-history idea that you would shut down the whole of society. And that means all of those negative side effects from people's education being interrupted, old people living in, in fear the economy being saddled with debt, destruction of businesses, the list is long and obviously I could go on. All of that 
needs to have a bit of a higher bar, I think, in terms of evidence. And it means that when you come to three years later, and the best defenders of lockdowns can do is say, well, it could have been worse yeah. had we not done it, but we can't point to any clear correlation between places that did lockdown and better outcomes. That's just not good enough, I mm. think. And most reasonable people would agree with that. Well, you would think. And yet you've got that result in your poll, because I'm interested as well in, in some of the places where uh, the strongest support for lockdowns were uh, were found. And, and not surprisingly, they would appear to be sort of leafy, affluent places in Britain, like the New Forest, like Henley, like the Cotswolds, like Bex Hill, places where mm. people were living a relatively comfortable life. Because I was working all the way through lockdown. Um, I myself found it a very odd time. And at the beginning, uh, I remember thinking, well, we'll just be... We'll just, I guess we'll just do this for three weeks. But I wasn't affected terribly badly in the sense that I went to work every day, although I didn't see my kids for about eight weeks. I just, you know, I, and every time I think back to it, I just think it was so odd and so weird and so mad. And I kind of lost faith with it quite quickly after that because I thought, how long is this going to go on for? And what is the actual point of any of it? I could never see the logic of being able to come into an office and work in the same space as other people, um, but somehow not be supposed to go any closer to them than a metre as if that would, you know, as if there was no such thing as air. Well, clearly, people had different experiences, mm. and I think our polling really shows that because, as you say, the the places in the UK that, in retrospect, feel most positive about the lockdown era are places which are not in inner cities. They are semi-rural or they're rural, and they tend to be more affluent. So mm. these are, as you say, nicer, leafier places where to be told that you don't have to come into work is quite a nice thing. And then if you look at the other end of the scale, you know, it is inner city areas, London, north of England, places where people are in blocks of flats, they are cooped up, and their experience of lockdowns was really nightmarish. So there is a there's a class divide and there's a rural urban divide here. But there's also a sort of political mm. divide, which is interesting, because if you look by political party about what people think of lockdowns, both Conservatives and Labour voters, they're almost the same on this question. Mm. It's not that it's a Conservative or Labour thing to feel anti-lockdown. The only party uh, that does feel that are people who voted for the Brexit party in 2019. Mm. Now, obviously, there might be some demographic reasons for that, but it's it feels like it's attitudinal. Mm. It feels like people who are more inclined to, to question uh, the authority, to be unhappy about the world, the way the world is governed, now, when they came to lockdowns, were much more questioning. They were much more angry about it. So, like everything, it's been sort of melded into a culture war. It's been melded into politics. Yes. It's not just about practical experience. And it's and it's been polarised, as you say. And quite a lot of young people now continuing to wear masks. I think the the whole work from home thing has has now definitely moulded its way into our way of life that many people now especially those under 30 talk about you know blended work at the very best um, you know maybe go to an office two days a week I mean nobody wants to work if you work in an office now and you're under 30 you're basically hardly ever there on a Monday or a Friday and mm. that seems to have become accepted now because despite mm. various companies trying to force people back to work it hasn't really happened has it? That's right I mean and a lot of people will feel positively about that no doubt uh, so I'm not going to say there were no positive effects of that period. But when you think back to how frightening it was and how anxious making and mm. strange and those of us who have older parents to watch how they were kind of prematurely aged by being cooped up for so long, unable to do their activities, to, to watch how all of our group activities are the kind of 
heartbeat of our society was strangled through that period mm. we really don't want to be considering ever doing it again um and what worries me about our polling is that if politicians think public support is still there for this kind of top-down authoritarian measure they might consider it again and all you can hope is that if they do we have to be better organized next time i mean if you polled those same people that you polled uh, for this particular question about whether lockdowns were a mistake and said if you said would you accept a further another lockdown in the case of a new pandemic and i guess it depends how you ask the question but do you think mm. those same people would say that they would accept it if they didn't think the last one was a mistake well we didn't ask the question so it's just speculation but i think you would find a, probably a majority i would speculate who would say in the right circumstances if you know the the danger was there and we didn't know enough about the scenario a lockdown should be considered an option and what i'd like to see is it being really taken off the table because mm. Having had this big international experiment, learning about all of the negative side effects, and having seen that countries that avoided them have flourished, people who interfered with their societies less ended up with fewer deaths. Mm. I'd really like to see that the next time the political class face this kind of crisis, they don't think that mandatory shutdowns of the whole country are a reasonable option. No. And most importantly, we need them to admit that the science that they said they were following wasn't really science at all. It was behavioural science mostly, and it was uh, speculative science at best, and it was certainly based on models which could have been created to do anything, really. And I think that's an important point that we should learn from this, particularly from the Matt Hancock um, WhatsApp messages, where we where we saw Boris Johnson making his, his first sort of plea for us to go home and stay home to save the NHS. Well, it didn't. It ruined the NHS, you know, to save lives. Well, it didn't. The same number of people would have died either way. You know, I think it's important that they learn that lesson and that we make sure that they do. Yeah, this whole idea of nudging, which is sort of what you're, you're mentioning yeah. there, the idea that the government's job is to influence everyone subconsciously through clever communications campaigns. This is actually a, an idea that came around in the Blair era and has become much more popular in the last 10 years. Mm. And I think people, when they think about it, should feel uneasy about that. You, you don't like the idea that as you just walk around your daily life, you're being constantly manipulated by the government right. into changing your behavior. And, so you're right that there was this idea that if you scare people, uh, that's a responsible thing for a government to do because it might change their behaviours. Mm. But uh, I would like that whole idea to to sort of go into history, to be honest, because, yes. as, as you say, being actively frightened by your government doesn't feel right. And what do you make of this sort of phenomenon uh, that we've been talking about a little bit this morning and, and based largely on people's observations that there's quite a lot of mask wearing still going on. Uh, and in fact, this morning uh, coming in, lots of people said to me they've noticed more people wearing masks, particularly on public transport. What do you think that's about? Because many of the people wearing them are young people going to work. I mean, other countries we know, certain Asian uh, countries have been using masks for longer I, my experience on the tube is actually you see very few masks and it, it, you could almost make the opposite point, which is that there are posters everywhere saying that, you know, if you want to wear a mask, you can, but very few, a small percentage of people choose mm. to do that. Uh, there has actually been a, a recent study by the Cochrane Institute, which is this very yes, yeah. uh, reputable uh, place that, that looks at the effectiveness of various interventions. And they concluded that there is no evidence that mandates more widespread mask wearing. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It makes a difference. So it's once again one of these strange things where the science, the evidence, really doesn't back it up. But it ends up to be more about how people feel um, yes. whether they it makes their life safer in some way obviously they must be allowed to carry on doing it but it doesn't strike me like the evidence is actually there to support it no quite freddie good to talk to you thank you very much indeed freddie says executive editor and presenter unheard as a new piece today uh, and unheard which i've retweeted also the poll that he did uh, also alison pearson's uh, interview as well uh, in the telegraph today i've put that out there too lots of you getting in touch with uh, remembrances of things that happened during lockdown of course one way arrows in our local asda says Baza. Uh, I wonder how many lives that saved. Well, true. And Kingsley says this was even daft and he shows us a picture uh, of uh, the sort of the public toilets in train stations and stuff where uh, every sort of only one urinal would be available. The next two would be blocked off and then there'd be another one so you didn't stand too near each other. I mean, just ridiculous. And Carol says, Mike, our Tesco's had traffic lights during COVID. You had to wait for a green light to enter. I remember that. I mean, all of this stuff you forget what we were asked to do. And Gary says this, Mike, I've owned a PPE company for 36 years. I've been selling masks into industry all that time to protect against fumes and dust. If three years ago I'd have advertised them as devices that protect against viruses, I'd have had the training standards knocking on my door. Well, quite. Exactly right. Some people should still have that. Coming up, uh, we're going to go down to College Green once more. We're going to talk to Gareth Bacon, MP, because guess what? It turns out that some of the uh, suggested science by Sadiq Khan about people dying from air pollution isn't right. In fact, it's wrong. This is Talk TV. Nationwide, by your side, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Uh, they expected my kid to wear a mask 10 hours a day at work. He is straight as a die, but he would put it under his chin when he could. And I saw an old girl wearing thick plastic type blue gloves in a shop. Poor woman. It wasn't her fault. Well, there was all kinds of mad stuff that used to go on uh, because people assumed it was somehow saving uh, lives. But of course, it was mostly just theatre, wasn't it? Uh, on the subject of Boris Johnson and the, 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 the uh, hearings yesterday, Christopher says, I watched as much of this kangaroo court as I could stand and agree that it was a colossal waste of time. MPs clearly had formed their decisions before asking any questions. And under Madame Guillotine, the outcome was obvious. I'm angry at Boris for what happened, but this was an actual farce. Um, and Pablo says, um, some people who uh, want to keep wearing masks say that it's like an invisibility cloak. Uh, and there's a piece in uh, what looks like The Guardian saying more than a year into the pandemic, some people prefer to keep wearing their face masks, even outdoors in public. And saying particularly some women like to wear them because they don't like people looking at them. Well, you know, why don't you just wear a veil? That would be easier, wouldn't it? 0344 499 1000 is the number. Let's talk to Gareth Bacon, MP. He's live with us down on College Green, Conservative MP for Orpington, uh, because we need to ask Gareth about what's been going on inside the mind of Sadiq Khan, the man who keeps telling us that 4,000 people die of air pollution every year. He issued a, a tweet the other day saying that in poor areas, the air pollution's worse than it is uh, in richer areas. Not quite sure how he's worked that one out, but let's ask Gareth. Gareth, very good morning mm. to you. 
Good morning, Mike. How are you? Yeah, very well indeed. I mean, we're talking a lot about science this morning and whether some science is better than other science. Uh, looking back, of course, at the three-year anniversary of, uh, uh, of the lockdown happening, um, it seems to me that politicians seem to use scientific data uh, to suit their purposes when they feel like it. Well, some do. Uh, I think that's probably <laughs> fair to say because... The, the, the thing about science is that most people in this country are not scientists, so uh, they would find it very difficult to contest it. Um, and you'll see if people say we need to follow the science for something, whatever the end may be, mm. that is almost the, uh, the trump card that can beat any argument, because unless you are scientifically qualified or you have a deep scientific understanding, you feel like you can't argue with it without yes. looking stupid. Yes, but the trouble is an awful lot of the science that they say is science actually isn't science, is it? I mean, as we saw with some of the modelling that went on during, during COVID, and as we're now seeing with Sadiq Khan, and his ULES uh, expansion plans. He keeps quoting this figure of 4,000 people dying of air pollution every single year, but he doesn't really have any data to back that up. Um, and in fact, it's now being challenged openly. Yes, well, the, the 4,000 figure uh, is, is the result of modelling that was done quite a long time ago. And what he's done is he's shifted the argument because when that w figure originally was released, it was 4,000 people, air pollution may contribute to a, an earlier death than they would otherwise have. Um, and he has changed the word contribute to cause. So people are now thinking, well, 4,000 people are dying directly as a result yeah. of air pollution. And of course, he is trying to blame the private motorist uh, for the cause of that air pollution. And actually, we know that where there is air pollution, it's not private vehicles is the primary contributor. It's a range of areas. And of course, the other thing is that when, when people die, uh, it depends on their age. They may die of a multitude of different factors. So, for example, in my own uh, borough, the London Borough of Bromley, he likes to say that 204 people every year are killed by air pollution. Well, that's not true. Uh, Bromley has the, the most elderly population in the whole of Greater London. Yes. A lot of them die of old age and the symptoms associated with old age. To mm. say that air pollution has killed them is a gross exaggeration, to say the least. Yes. Also, we live in, in London. Uh, it's a multi-faceted city. It has all manner of different parts of it, which some are more green than yes. others. Um, but rather, mm -hmm. I would imagine that we all share the same air. You know, I don't know how it's possible for him to mm. make out that poorer areas suffer more from air pollution than richer areas, because how does he know that? Well, I think he's probably making the jump that uh, poorer areas tend to be the most built up areas. So uh, you would go to certain parts of, say, Kensington or Camden or places like that where the, air, where the area is much more built up and there's uh, less area for uh, whatever air pollution there is to disperse. If you were to come somewhere like Orpington, two-thirds of it is green field. If yeah. you looked at it from an aerial map, you would see a sea of green everywhere. Right. So any air pollution that is generated, it's e easier to dissipate. So I think that's probably the argument that he's making, but I haven't seen any scientific data that he's produced that backs that up. Well, exactly right. But also, the air isn't really contained, is it? I mean, I'm sorry if I sound a bit unscientific here, but, you know, mm. I've lived in Camden um, and you can walk down Camden yep. High Street uh, and you can walk for 10 mm -hmm. minutes and find yourself on Primrose Hill uh, where it's rather nice. Now uh, it may well be that yes. because it you're standing be. in the middle of a road that you're getting more exhaust fumes yep. there but I don't know that you know as a borough it's suddenly more polluted than others. No, I mean, there are measures that have been done, I think, by Imperial College, um, and they do rank the various different London boroughs. So I know, for example, that the London Borough of Bromley has marginally less clean air than the London Borough of Havering, but their numbers one and two, respectively, mm. uh, in the whole of Greater London. Um, so it will vary from place to place. But, you know, it has occurred to me more than once. I listened to Sadiq Khan talking as though we're all living in this sort of gigantic gas chamber yeah. where we're all breathing in poisonous air. It's going to terminate our lives. I'm over 50 years old and I've lived in Greater London for just about all of my life. And I've worked in central London since I was 18 and I don't seem to be dead. So <laughs> I, I can't quite work out how he is making that leap. And of course, 
he lives and works in central London and he's older than me. So, right. you know, uh, I, his argument seems to fall down the minute you start probing it. Yeah. And the, uh, the various different uh, boroughs, uh, many of them uh, you'll know in, in the sort of southeast of the, of the corner of the outskirts of London, and also some in the north and, and mm. in Essex as well, are, are standing up against it. They're mounting some kind of a yes. legal challenge, and, and, and they're hoping yes. to be able to stop uh, the expansion of the ULES, which I think is supposed to happen in a couple of months' time. I also noted that in the last mm. few weeks or last few weekends, people have started covering up some cameras. So there's a bit of civic resistance going on as well. Mm. Well, there's quite a lot from what I've heard. I mean, I've heard about cameras being covered over. There was an amusing photograph uh, of a cardboard box that had been put yes. over a camera somewhere with um, Stop Electing Idiots written on it, <laughs> uh, which I thought was, was marginally entertaining. Um, I, I have heard that cameras have been uh, vandalised. Mm. The wires have been cut. Some of them have been torn down. Mm. And obviously, I don't advocate that. But I do understand why some people are feeling so aggrieved by this, because they're seeing a, a massive imposition being put onto their, the way they live their lives for no reason at all. And this is the, the absolutely key point. I keep talking about the Jacobs report, which was produced as part of Sadiq Khan's consultation. It was an independent report, so he could not control the outcome. And they assessed the uh, air quality benefit of him rolling out the ultra-low emission zone to Greater London and came back and said it would be minor to negligible in almost every regard. Mm. So he's doing this, claiming it's about air pollution, and it isn't. And everyone knows what it really is about. It's really about raising hundreds of millions of pounds right. by fleecing motorists. Yes, and he's already doing that. I mean, what on earth is he doing with all the money that he gets already? Because, I mean, the congestion charge, the, the ULES charge, which is already in place, must produce hundreds of millions yep. of pounds. What's he doing with it? Well, the truth is, of course, that Transport for London is struggling financially. It struggled during the pandemic because people stopped using their services because they were under lockdown and staying at home. Um, but, of course, there's other reasons as well. He imposed a fares freeze for the first four years, despite knowing that he couldn't afford it. And he bungled Crossrail. And that's very important because mm. Crossrail would have raised by now billions of pounds in fares revenue that wasn't realised because it wasn't open. Right. So TfL is way behind where they need to be financially. Uh, and he's looking for extra ways to raise revenue. And he settled on the ultra-low emission zone as, as quite a wheeze because he can disguise what he's doing by claiming that it's on environmental grounds and it's about air quality. But we all know that it's not. No, quite right. And just finally, Gareth, on, on the third anniversary of, of, of lockdown, um, and uh, that, that seems incredible that it's been that long ago, really. Three years has passed incredibly quickly. Yep. Um, a lot of people saying to me this morning that, you know, we must learn from what happened. We must never do it again. Um, Whatever went before, you know, nobody necessarily must be held account for, uh, accountable for it. But, but, the, but there needs to be a proper inquiry and there needs to be proper um, probing, I think, not the sort of stuff we saw yesterday. But, you know, genuine questions being asked to mm. members of the government as to why they did certain things. Well, I think that that's fair. I mean, that's why the government agreed to set up a, a COVID inquiry. Because, I mean, obviously it was one of the, the, the most seismic things that's happened in any of our lifetimes. And I think it's perfectly right to go back and look at that and look at the decisions that were made. But I think it does need to be done in context, because when the pandemic first started to strike around the world, there was incomplete information, there was a lot of fear, uh, and people didn't know what they were dealing with. And so some of the measures that the government introduced at that time were in that context. I think now, three years on, it's very easy to sit back and look and, and look at it and say, well, of course that was wrong and this was wrong and that was wrong. Um, and, and I understand that because I believe me, I, I didn't enjoy lockdown like everybody else. It was a, a terrible time and sort of mentally I've blocked some of it out because I don't like to think about it. Yeah. Um, so I think it is important to have the inquiry, but I think it's also important whilst we're having the inquiry to appreciate the context in which decisions were made because I don't think decisions were being made in bad faith. I think they were being made with the best of intentions, whether they were right or wrong, 
I think that's something the inquiry can, can wrinkle out. Indeed. Gareth, good to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Gareth Bacon, MP, Conservative uh, for Alpington there, which is one of the areas affected by the expansion zone uh, for ULEZ, the ultra-low emission zone that Sadiq Khan uh, wants to operate uh, even on the outskirts of London, not just inside of it. And of course, there's massive opposition to it and nobody wants it. Uh, even in a consultation, something like 80% of people said they weren't interested in it. And yet he's still pressing ahead. Why? Because he needs the money doesn't he? Uh, let's not forget, you should subscribe uh, to the Independent Republican Mike Graham podcast. It comes out every single day. You don't have to miss a moment from the show. Subscribe to it now. Download it from wherever you get your podcast. Coming next, we're going to talk to Harry Miller about why Sir Keir Starmer thinks he's fighting justice and fighting crime, when in fact, he's enabling it. This is Talk TV. The home of common sense. Talk radio and talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. Lots of you getting in touch with us this morning, and uh, of course, uh, we'll try and get to as many of you as we possibly can. Robin Petersfield says, Mike, Lord Haywood had it so wrong. This trial has nothing to do with what Boris did, but whether he uh, lied to Parliament. If those in power don't understand, what hope there is is there uh, for the many? Uh, Danny in Essex says, Mike, of course many people are still in favour of lockdowns. A vast swathe of the working public were either paid not to work or have been able to work in their pyjamas from home. Um, and Andy in Southampton says... This Mike, it's easy to criticise the school closures during lockdown, but you forget the pressure being brought on by the left-wing mainstream media like the BBC and also by the teaching unions to save teachers' lives. Also, would all the Labour MPs that took part in the BLM mob riots be put in front of a committee like Boris for breaking lockdown distancing rules? Well, that's a very good question. Uh, the answer to which I think you probably know uh, is no, that won't be happening because it's only um, if you're from the virtue signalling left that you can in any way be morally right. Because if you're not... You must be a horrible, evil, bigoted person. That's the way things are, I'm afraid. Harry Miller's here, former police officer, chief executive of the Bad Law Project. Not at all making that link with you, Harry, because obviously you're not an evil, horrible, bigoted person, are you? No, I'm, not, I'm, def I'm definitely not. Yeah, I, I read this story this morning, <laughs> Mike, and it's, a, it, it's quite incredible. Whatever happened to tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime? Yeah. Because the last time I looked... Criminals, known criminals, were a major cause of crime. So let's get tough on them. Let's deport them. Let's chase them down. Let's lock them up. If they've no right to be here, then get them out of the country. It's quite simple. I don't understand why Sir Softy um, is, is quite so keen on having criminals um, in our country. It's crazy. Yeah, he doesn't like homegrown criminals, but he does like the foreign ones. I mean, that's what you get, really, isn't it? Uh, don't forget, uh, it was only a couple of weeks ago that we had the story of the Jamaican man who was supposed to be deported. Keir Starmer actually signed a letter, along with various other virtue-signalling lovies, to keep him in the country. And then he went on and killed yeah, somebody. Yeah, yeah, well, the, the problem is, our homegrown um, criminals are probably racist, uh, not ideologically unsound, so yes. you'll be very much against them. But, but the imported ones uh, is very much in favour of uh, because they, they fit with the woke agenda. Mm. They fit with the woke agenda. I don't understand, Mike, this hypocrisy around enforcing borders. I mean, all of these people, I bet you a pound to a penny that Sakir puts a lock on his door. Justin Welby has a lock on his door. Yeah. Gary Lineker has a lock on his door. These people understand boundaries. They understand the need for personal security. They understand the idea of ring-fencing their own property. But because they live out in the shires, where, you can, where, 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 where sort of illegal immigrants cannot just jump on a bus or walk past their front door, 
they're not bothered. They're not bothered. They don't give a toss no. about the people in Kent or the people in Rotherham or, or what have you, where criminals roaming our streets, illegal immigrants roaming our streets, who are known to be criminals. They don't care about that because in their gated communities, they're safe and sound. So security is something for, is something for them. But if other people try and apply security to our nation's yes. state, then we are deemed to be horribly racist. Yes. Well, I'll take that analogy even further, because uh, what Gary Lineker proposes and other people like him propose is that whoever knocks on your front door, you just let them in um, and you say, yeah, come in. Why, in fact, why don't you just stay? You know, how many of you? Oh, what, 25? Well, fine, in you come. I've only got two bedrooms, but, you know, 25 you can come in. Oh, another 25 tomorrow. Uh, before you know where you are, you'll be standing in the house like this, you know, and you've got 600 exactly. people and, in there. And they're all fine. You don't even know who they are. Even better. Even if you're a criminal, even better. Because the softy Kia's plan was to give everybody a mobile phone and to give them finance in order to help them stay in the UK. Look, we have a real problem, Mike. The law is being manipulated by clever people for ideological and political yeah. ends. That's entirely wrong. Now, I'm a big fan of the, of, of the stage show Les Miserables. Yes. Now, but my sympathies are always with Javert, the police officer. You know, he was hunting down, he was hunting down a criminal. And that was the right thing to do. It was. The point is this as well, uh, that here we have a situation where um, criminality is not really understood anymore by the kind of the lefty, lovey classes because they don't really have to come up against it very often. But the idea that somehow uh, if, if, if you just say to everybody, well, they're basically good people, everybody's a good person. I mean, you wouldn't get very far walking the streets of London, I'm afraid. No, you wouldn't. And that's why I say, Mike, these people who say that, they live in gated communities... They understand boundaries. They lock their door. Justin Welby locks his churches. Lambeth Palace is not a walk-through, drive-through sort of place, is it? He understands the need for security. But because these people live in, in, in this gated heaven, they can afford to be ideological, ideologically pure mm. and tell the rest of us that we just have to operate a laissez-faire uh, policy to absolutely anybody who comes across our path or comes to our borders. Well, absolute nonsense, Mike. We need the police to police, and we need to pick up criminals wherever they come from and either lock them up or throw them out. Yes. It's straightforward. But the deportation process has become, as you say, completely and utterly overrun by people who are picking holes in the legislation, picking holes in, in what may be supplied from the ECHR over in uh, Strasbourg, the European Court of Human Rights. The Home Office is saying they're going to make it more difficult for these last-minute interventions to actually happen. But it's Keir Starmer's speciality. You know, it's, it's yeah, what, it, it, what he likes to do. Exactly, because there's an awful lot of money in, in going to court for these people. The, the problem is, Mike, we are using the law. These people are using the law for a political purpose. Mm. There's supposed to be a separation of power. We let the politicians decide what's right and wrong in terms it, 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 legally. We get the police to enforce it. And then we get we get the judiciary to decide who's right, because everybody's, everybody's entitled to a defence. Yeah. We've, we've somehow managed to blur the boundaries. So now we have the ridiculous situation where, where the police are doing the bidding of the government, where the judiciary are following the equal treatment bench book, which is written by wokest lunatics, and where politicians, who also happen to be lawyers, are using 
the, the, the judiciary and the police in order to achieve their political purposes. We need to have a root and branch reform and we need to have a clear separation of powers. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Harry, good to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Former police officer, chief executive of the Bad Law Project, of course. Keir Starmer up today speaking about how his life's work is all about fighting crime, like some kind of caped crusader. But it turns out the actual truth of the matter uh, is that he has more than helped for some crime to continue because he has been responsible for uh, the release of certain criminals who have ended up committing even more crime because he stopped them from being deported under the human rights laws. So he talks about fighting crime all his life. He's trying to present himself as this kind of, you know, um, I don't know, vigilante crime fighter type guy. And that is exactly not what he's been doing for most of his career, even when he was at the DPP. This is Talk TV. On the app, on your smart speaker, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. We're into the afternoon. Uh, it is five minutes past midday, of course, and I can only tell you uh, that there's more bad news from uh, the Bank of England. They've just raised the interest rates, as we thought they would do, uh, this time up to 4.25%, uh, as expected, uh, 25 basis points, basically. Uh, they voted, the Monetary Policy Committee, that is, uh, voted in favour of the high crime majority of 7 to 2. Can we not find the other two people and say, oi, you know, can you do a bit better on the persuading front, please? There's a lot of people uh, worried about their mortgages here. Uh, nobody knows precisely where this is all going. It was thought, of course, that inflation might fall uh, in the most recent uh, measurement, uh, but it went up. And everybody went, oh, I thought it was going down. Never mind. Uh, apparently vegetables were the cause of that, but we'll find out uh, from Martin van der Weyer, business editor at Spectator, uh, exactly what we should expect next. Stephen points out um, the one thing you need to know about masks, basically, is that Michael Jackson used to wear them, Right? Arrest my case. 03444991000 is the number. Coming up in this hour, we're going to hear um, a clip from Piers Morgan's interview with Ron DeSantis. We'll find out uh, what's going on with that. We'll hear from loads of you as well. Amber Athey's going to join us too uh, from the US of A because there's an awful lot of noise um, and not very much action going on around, of course, Donald Trump. He was saying he was expected to be arrested on Tuesday this week. Uh, that never happened. Uh, it's all about a rather convoluted legal case which is being brought by the same kind of people who want to punish Boris Johnson. Uh, they also want to punish Donald Trump. They want him to never be able to stand again. They want him never to be able to run for president. Uh, and the Democrats can't make up their mind, really, whether they want him to be able to run uh, because they keep saying he's their best asset because Joe Biden would definitely beat him um, or whether they should stop him from running altogether because he is a very dangerous asset uh, indeed for the Republicans. All very confusing. We'll try and get to the bottom of that. Helena Nicklin here, of course, as well, with the Thursday Club. Uh, we'll be celebrating something or other, I'm sure. But we probably won't be celebrating another rise in the interest rates. Let's talk to Martin van der Weyer right now. Martin, a very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. So um, here we are again. Um, it does seem as though it's gone rather rapidly uh, to 4.25%. How, how long ago was it actually down at sort of 1.25? It's probably not that long ago, is it? Well, is this the 11th rise in a row? I mean, it, yeah, it's a, it's a very rapid rise. But um, I just slightly take issue with your first phrase that this is, this is entirely bad news. Mm. Um, it isn't entirely bad news. It's kind of normal news. It's what was expected. And if they, <laughs> if they hadn't put the rate up, bear in mind, if they hadn't put the rate up, or even if, as some economists were saying, you know, cut the rate to 3%, mm. that would have been actually a signal of serious concern that there was something 
some other very bad thing happening uh, in the banking sector. So what's happened is we've had a bit of a scare in the banking sector. Stock markets recovered. People calmed down a bit. And the Bank of England decided to stick to plan A, Mm. keep nudging rates up. And if you want inflation you know, we can. T- I'm sure we're going to talk about inflation in a second. But if you want inflation to come down, as the Chancellor said it would, to 2.9% by the end of the year, part of what's built into that projection is interest rates going up, because interest rates are the Bank of England tool for fighting inflation. So although ob- obviously it's bad and painful for people with tracker mortgages, on the other hand, it should be a comfort to the many larger number of people, older people, with savings, who get a little bit more on their savings. So, you know, let's not pour gloom all over this. <laughs> no, listen, I'm old enough to remember that interest rates used to be at reasonable levels. And actually, I think when I bought a house last, 4.25% would have been very welcome uh, because it was quite a lot higher than that. Um, uh, but at the end of the Whole day... of the 2000s up to 2008, mm. rate, well, from late 1999 to the crash in 2008, rates moved somewhere between... Uh, three and a half and six percent. That that was the normal. Then we've had fourteen years, roughly, of a new normal where they're they're down near zero. But you know, in the past, they were way above ten percent. Yeah. For long oh, I remember. I mean, I think I bought a house back in. Yeah, sort of 2006-ish, 7-ish, around then. Um, I'm pretty sure I was at about 7.25% or something like that. Um, And and it was one of those, um, I think it was a variable rate for two years. I mean, it was in the days when basically anybody could get a mortgage, anybody would give you anything, and they didn't really care for even, you know, as long as you could prove who you were, uh, that was fine, you know. Yeah, I mean, the speed of the rise has been painful, and the... You know, as a percentage of what what you started from to where you're going to be now on a tracker, obviously it's a big rise. Right. But there we are. Yes. Save and the there are, pl- there are the plenty of economists. Get, get something out of this. Sure. And there are plenty of economists, Martin, like you, who would say, you know, this is more of a regular and, and reasonable rate. And in fact, it shouldn't ever go back down to where it was. And it should. I mean, do you think it should settle somewhere around three and a half, four? Or uh, what's your view on that? Yeah. I mean, in a perfect world. You have a real return uh, on savings, for example. So you you want the interest rate to be higher than the inflation rate. Yeah. If we can get back to that, that's a that's a normality we've almost forgotten at the moment. Mm. And it's not not helped, as you say, by by the inflation rate going up this week uh, when everyone yeah. was suggesting that it might be going down. And I was reading a piece earlier on this morning suggesting that it was all down to the cost of vegetables, but it can't uh, be that simple, can it? Well, there are there have been famously cucumber, tomato, possibly cauliflower shortages. Yes. I think, uh, as I understood it, it's partly that it's it's some raw material supplies, food supplies. It's partly the hospitality industry. I think holding prices down probably in the pre-Christmas period, taking some of the pain themselves with their labour shortage, and then notching their prices up. Um, in the in the new year, and then clothing was a factor too. But the simple fact is that there are still elements of inflation that are considerably above the the generalised figure of ten point four percent. So food inflation may was last measured in January. I think it's sixteen percent. Hmm. So there's a lot of this stuff to to be worked out. And then there's the wage pressures, which look as if that's moving in the right direction. At least some wage settlements are coming through. Yes, that are not 
wildly inflationary that's a good thing but we should shouldn't kid ourselves just because the chancellor says it's going down to 2.9 percent but it's just going to do that automatically of course it isn't there'll be bumps on on the way right. and that was the signal this week for the bank to stick to its plan and and put the interest rate up yes and talking of the woes in the banking industry i mean sparked off by that silicon valley bank in uh, california then feeding its way through somehow to credit suisse and ubs mm. Um, kind of being put there uh, against its will, I'm told, to buy uh, Credit Suisse for a billion quid. They didn't want to do it. Credit Suisse didn't want them to do it. Uh, the shareholders didn't really fancy the, uh, the idea either. But is that all? Set, is that sort of the end of it now, or is there still going to be reverberations around the world? You'd be a brave, brave uh, commentator to say that's the end of it. But what you should recognise is those are two completely separate events. You know, five or six thousand miles apart the silicon valley bank thing there could be contagion there there is an expectation there are other smaller banks in a similar position to them they've just got their position wrong their bond holdings have crashed in value they you know and people are nervous about them but the american banking system ought to be capable of of sorting that out credit suisse completely different story very badly managed bank everyone in the know knew it was in serious trouble for months. It should have been sorted out last autumn. It <laughs> lingered on. Yeah. And now, in a week of very febrile market activity with its shares crashing, partly short selling doing that, um, then the Swiss authorities just had to get on with it. And the fact that they don't like being crunched into a merger with their only major Swiss rival, well, you know, neither would you really if there were only <laughs> two of you on that desk. I mean, there were sort of, well, the only reason... you was going to survive, you'd be unhappy about yeah, it. I suppose really. so. But, but, but I mean, the, the reason I, I raised it simply was because I was listening to a, a, a commentator a couple of days ago uh, who was talking about how... Um, it sort of rode roughshod over the idea that um, the shareholders or the board of a bank get to make a decision based upon what the bank wants to do as opposed to being told by the government, this is what you're going to do. Well, not in extreme circumstances and not if you, as banking authorities around the world now seem to do, not if you want to protect the depositors completely. Banks are regulated businesses and if they've got it seriously badly wrong, as Credit Suisse has for a decade Mm. really, it's been pretty badly managed. They should expect, and it, you can imagine the banking sort of establishment, the who's who of banking in Switzerland. It's a pretty small group of people. Yes, they, you know, um, they know what they knew what was coming down the track. They can't. They really can't complain. If you're the other guys, UBS, you may say, "Oh hell, this is a bit like Lloyd's and H Boss. We had a reasonable business. Now we've got this absolute basket case yeah. being shoved in here with us. That's not." We we wish we could have avoided that. I can understand that. But yeah, but it's I guess inevitable, it... and it's very special to the circumstances of Credit Suisse. It doesn't mean the whole of European banking is somehow less safe than we thought it was. It's actually very well capitalised, and most of the banks have been behaving pretty yeah. sensibly. Yeah, I, it's just, I will a... be personally amazed if if all the next you know next time we speak we're in the middle of a huge banking crash. <laughs> I, I just don't think that's what's going on. No, at all. but it's interesting, isn't it? Because the sort of traditional view of Swiss banks is that they were the safest places in the world to put your money yeah. in, and and they've and been secret. Well, 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 the IRS blew that apart, didn't they? When they, in fact, um, I know that a couple of Swiss banks stopped operating in America because they didn't like the idea that the IRS, uh, the, the Internal Revenue Service, the tax people in America, could sort of reach over with their hands and see who had what in a Swiss bank, which they managed to do at one point. And so the they shut down all their, yeah. all their US offices. The point there 
is that if they had stuck to just being safe, frankly, boring Swiss mm. banks looking after Swiss people's money, but also an international clientele, which occasionally turned out to include some dictators and bad guys and so on. But never mind. If they'd stuck to traditional Swiss banking, you know, they they wouldn't have collapsed. But as it is that Credit Suisse did all sorts of crazy business around the world. Mm. Green bill, everybody likes to talk about because it tainted David Cameron's career. But the thing called Archie Goss, where they lost five and a half billion on a single account right. with people trading derivatives in New York, completely mad form of business. So they went outside the territory where they were comfortable and they knew what they were doing. And this is the consequence. Yeah, there you go. Stephen asked me to give you a message. Does the hospitality industry put prices up because the big greedy brewers did and do so year on year? Uh, so please tell your guests not to blame us. So there you go. It's the brewers' fault, okay. apparently. Well, I'm sure. And their food supplies were going up and they've had to put their wage rates up to get enough staff in. So, no, I'm, you know, I'm not criticised. I'm very sympathetic to the hospitality. Yes, me too. I'm amazed how robust they are in carrying on. I also observe, as a matter of interest, certainly across London, but out of London too, that hospitality is quite busy. I see restaurants are quite full. Yeah. So, you know, consumers, of course, there are people who are suffering in all this. I'm not unsympathetic to them, but I, I observe consumers are spending quite readily mm. and i believed the chancellor when he said you know the chances of a recession have have retreated so there was an underlying strand of good news and then there was this bank scare and now we've got a little inflation blip it's not a it's not an easy course this there are you know bumps in the road no that's all I'm saying Absolutely. But the path the path looks reasonably sensible we, there is grounds for some optimism here okay martin it's always good to hear optimism on this the show. independent republic of mike graham on talk radio we're going to go across to the other side of the atlantic of course because uh, you'll have been hearing all week that donald trump might get arrested uh, he was meant to be arrested on tuesday um much of the conversation about him being arrested was actually coming from donald trump himself it was almost as though he was sort of goading the authorities into doing it, knowing that if they did, uh, his popularity would probably soar. Uh, it's already soaring on the fact that it might happen. It hasn't happened as yet, but we're going to talk to Amber Athey, Washington editor of The Spectator, about it very shortly. But before we do that, uh, coming up tonight at 8pm, uh, it's on Piers Morgan Uncensored. Piers Morgan was over uh, in uh, Florida and he went to see uh, Ron DeSantis, who is, of course, uh, the up-and-coming governor of Florida. Many people think he might become the front runner for the Republican Party. Many people think he could be the president of the United States, if not now uh, in the next election, then sometime in the future. Uh, but here's Piers Morgan asking him about the difference between him and Donald Trump. People have been quite kind of scathing. They've said your house trained Donald, your diet coke to his <laughs> full coke, right? You've heard all this stuff. What are the differences between you? Well, I know what I, I know him very well. I, having now spent time with you, I, I could immediately identify a few differences. But what do you think of the differences? Well, I mean, I think there's a few things. I mean, obviously, you know, the, the approach to COVID was, was different. I mean, you know, I would have fired somebody like Fauci. Uh, I think that he got way too big for his britches. And I think he did a lot of damage. Uh, I also think just in terms of my approach to leadership, you know, I get personnel in the government who have the agenda of the people and share our agenda. If you bring your own agenda in, you're gone. We're just not going to have that. So the way we run the government, I think, is no daily drama, focus on the big picture, and put points on the board. And I think that that's something that's very important. 
That's Piers Morgan Uncensored tonight at 8 o'clock, the full interview. We'll talk some more uh, about that interview. We'll show you another couple of clips as well. But let's say a very good morning, uh, because it is uh, over in the US of A. Amber Athey's there, Washington Editor of The Spectator. Amber, very good morning to you. Good morning. I don't know whether you've had a chance to uh, to see, I know there's been some coverage of the, uh, of the Piers Morgan interview uh, with DeSantis, um, in which a lot of American sort of news outlets have reacted saying, we have now a sort of reasonably good idea that DeSantis is going to run. Uh, it's just not that quite clear yet exactly when he's going to say he's going to do that officially. Right. And the difficulty there is that Florida has what's called a resign to run law, which means he's actually legally not allowed to announce a campaign before resigning from the governorship. Mm. And so basically, Republicans, it seems, are waiting for the Florida legislature to overturn that, to repeal that legislation, to clear the lane for DeSantis to run for president while still remaining governor. Ah, okay. So is that just a sort of a, a, a quirk in Florida or is that the case for every governor? That's a Florida-specific law. Right. Um, so so that's a, obviously a bit unfortunate for Ron DeSantis. Right. And the ethics complaint that Trump filed against him was basically accusing him of running a shadow campaign while still being governor, which would be, of course, a violation right. of ethics. Yes, it's been interesting, hasn't it, watching you know the Trump-DeSantis relationship moving around because it's not quite clear um, where it goes uh, in any given day because DeSantis and Trump used to be kind of quite good friends. Trump now kind of abuses him quite frequently and, and, uh, <laughs> and was yesterday tweeting about Piers Morgan's interview with him, saying, why is he being interviewed by some English guy who's got failing ratings and all this kind of thing? You know, he was getting stuck in on that. Um, meanwhile, of course, he says, I made him. If it wasn't for me, there would be no Ron DeSantis or Ron Sanctimonious, as he calls him. Yeah, I think he's uh, exaggerating a little bit there. I mean, no, someone doesn't really? win re-election. Re- <laughs> I know, imagine that, Trump exaggerating. But, I mean, someone doesn't win re-election in Florida by 20 points just due to the endorsement of Donald Trump. I mean, everybody knows that. Um, but I think it's complicated because uh, right now with the arrest looming over Trump, Republicans definitely want to see people standing up for him because it's such an obvious political persecution from this Manhattan DA. But at the same time, if you're Ron DeSantis, you have to think this guy just filed an ethics complaint against against me before I've even announced for president. I don't owe him anything. Exactly. Let's have a look, actually, at Piers asking him about uh, the nicknames that he's been given by Donald Trump. Which is your favourite nickname that Trump's given you so far? Is it Ron... Ronda Sanctimonious or Meatball Ron? <laughs> well, I can't... I think uh, even he went off Meatball Ron. I, I can't... Uh, I don't know how to spell the Sanctimonious. I don't really know what it means, but I, you know, I kind of like it's long. It's got a lot of vowels. I mean, so we go with that. That's fine. You know, you can, call me, you can call me whatever you want. I mean, just as long as you, you know, also call me a winner because that's what we've been able to do in Florida is put a lot of points on the board and, and, and really take the state to the next level. And, and as you said, Amber, he is a winner. Um, he also was there, I guess, making a little dig at Donald Trump, who uh, nominated or, or endorsed quite a few candidates uh, in the midterms who lost. Sure, and lost the 2020 presidential election. And I think uh, Ron DeSantis has a really clear lane to run against Trump on this COVID issue. He, of course, talked about that in the interview, saying that he would have fired Dr. Fauci. I interviewed Trump in the summer of 2021, and I asked him why he didn't fire Dr. Fauci. And what he told me was that Dr. Fauci had been with the government for 40 years and he was an institution. Hmm. And he's told other people as well that he was worried about the press backlash that he would get. And so I think Ron DeSantis is going to be able to position himself as someone who was not concerned 
about the way the media covered him because he did take a lot of heat for being one mm. of the first states to open up during COVID. That's an interesting insight as well into Donald Trump, isn't it? That he does actually care, regardless of uh, how many tweets he puts out saying he doesn't care. He does really care about how the press reacts to what he does. He does. I mean, you have to consider that Trump was basically a New York socialite for a number of years and he enjoyed really favorable press coverage. Mm. And he's also of an era where the New York Times held a lot of prestige in American culture. And so he still has that nostalgia and that desire to really have them give him the positive press that he used to enjoy when he was just a real estate mogul. Right. And what is the truth about this whole arrest business? Because, I mean, I've never believed that he was going to be arrested because you'd have to be crazy uh, to arrest him publicly, you know, put him through the, uh, the perp walk, put him in handcuffs, drag him down the street, you know, because that would be sure fire uh, a hit to make him the next president, wouldn't it? I think so. Uh, I mean, he's raised over, I think, one and a half million dollars on these claims that he is going to be arrested. The initial claim was that the arrest was going to happen on Tuesday. Then we were told that yesterday he was going to be arraigned and still nothing. So uh, it's kind of interesting to see how exactly this is all going to right. play out. But the reality of the situation is that these charges are trumped up, right? This is a misdemeanor that's been elevated to uh, a felony. And it's also arguably not even under the purview of the Manhattan DA mm. because this was a charge that was recently dismissed um, by federal law enforcement because right. they didn't think there was enough there. So it's very unlikely that they're going to do this big show of Trump being uh, paraded in handcuffs through da the downtown streets of New York mm. and, and giving him the mugshot. Um, so I think he's definitely playing it up a little bit to try to rally support from the base. Absolutely right. And, and all of his supporters know uh, or believe anyway that it's a, uh, not just a trumped up charge as you say but it, but it is politically motivated uh, and is absolutely and utterly designed to try and stop him from ever running about the uh, ever running for president ever again it's a bit like what they're trying to do to Boris Johnson here uh, where they're trying to make it impossible for him to stand uh, in elections but which he probably doesn't even care about yeah, and I think the image question of it is actually uh, second to the financial question because naturally being involved in a lot of investigations for multiple years costs a lot of money. And previously when Trump was a candidate, the Republican National Committee covered a lot of his legal fees. He's now having to pay those out of pocket. So if he runs for president again, maybe he can get reimbursement uh, once again from these GOP committees or his PACs to cover those legal expenses. So there is an incentive for him to uh, run for president. And there's also, uh, I think, an incentive for these people who are trying to investigate him and go after him to cripple him financially because they know that the more they prosecute him, the more his base is just going to rally behind him. But I see today there's a letter uh, which has emerged from Michael Cohen's lawyer uh, which is being said to be uh, enough to blow the case out of the water anyway, allegedly saying that uh, uh, in terms of the, the money being paid to Stormy Daniels, Cohen used his own personal funds rather than being given the money by Donald Trump. That's one of the many problems with this case, isn't it? You have two key witnesses who are not credible. Michael Cohen is a convicted liar. He's a, he's a felon. Uh, and he has repeatedly changed his tune on whether or not Trump knew about the payments to Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal and whether or not Trump personally reimbursed him for it and then wrote it off, um, of course, as a legal expense. 
So he has to make the case that he was not that he was lying then, but he's not lying now. And that's difficult for <laughs> any jury to grapple with. Yeah, absolutely right. And finally, he've got a new book out. I just was looking at a little clip on uh, on Twitter earlier on uh, uh, the Snowflakes Revolt. Tell us about it. Absolutely. So this book is all about the misguided notion that people on the right and the left had about the college uh, woke mobs, which over the past two decades have used mob politics, whether it's public shaming campaigns, sit-ins, or the organization of unions to um, really institute progressive politics on college campuses. Um, And a lot of them graduated, and we thought that they'd be slapped in the face by the real world, but that didn't happen. Instead, they were hired on at major American institutions and exercised a lot of the same influence that they did on college campuses. Mm. That's why you see like uh, the American media and other uh, major American institutions like corporations and Hollywood shifting further to the left than ever. Yeah, it really is the same thing that's happening here. I mean, we had Claire Fox, who's a regular contributor to this show, um, um, a baroness, no less, in the House of Lords, who was prevented from coming to speak at a university in London because she'd retweeted a clip of Ricky Gervais uh, making a joke about trans women. Um, you know, and you kind of just shake your head and go, really, is that what you want to do? You just want to ban people for retweeting a joke? That's what they want. Uh, these people are so arrogant and narcissistic that they believe they have a monopoly on truth. And anyone who threatens their version of the truth has to be destroyed. Um, and they will even use violence in response to people who challenge their opinions. Mm. It's a very, very radical and toxic ideology, and it's not going away anytime soon. It's really not. Any chance we can get the book here? I would love to send you a copy. I mean, I don't mean me. I just mean, can people buy it? I mean, do send, oh. us, do send us a copy. But anyway, but, but I'll try and get some people to buy it over here as well. I assume you can. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Bookshop, wherever okay. you all buy your books. Okay, good stuff. Great to talk to you, Amber. Thank you very much indeed. Amber Athey, Washington editor of The Spectator. Um, I'm not sure they're going to arrest Donald Trump. I mean, he made some great hay out of it earlier this week, but I just didn't see it happening. And I don't see it happening because any, anyone who knows Donald Trump the way that we all know Donald Trump would say that will be an automatic key to the White House because it's known that it is all about politics. It's nothing to do with criminality. And it's all about trying to stop Donald Trump from getting back into the White House. And if they arrest him, he'll be straight back in there. No problem at all. Uh, coming up, Helena Nicklin will be here. We'll take some calls, of course, as well. 0344 499 1000. Don't forget, of course, you can get the podcast here, the Daily Podcast, Independent Republican Mike Graham. Uh, you won't miss anything from the show. Uh, just go to wherever you normally get your podcast, download it, and subscribe. This is Talk TV. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.